While the children are still gathering their quiet bags, uh, I just want to thank you for the warm welcome that you've given me in my first week as your senior pastor. I would say to the guests that got ushered to the front row that there's one seat worse in the house, and it's right there. (laughs) So be glad they didn't move you up here. But it has been a great first week, and I appreciate the way that you've loved and supported me. I especially appreciate those of you who are wearing your name tags. I have an idea, just an idea. If you don't wear your name tag next week, you have to put more money in the offering plate. (laughs) So I expect a much better percentage of you wearing those name tags next Sunday, okay? Or we'll have a lot more money to do ministry. So either way, it's all good, right? Well, you've heard the scripture lesson read this morning, and I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm reading scripture or I'm listening to scripture being read, all sorts of questions just sort of come to mind. And as I was listening to the scripture read this morning, and indeed as I was preparing to preach for you this week, I couldn't help but wonder what it was that led Jesus to ask those two questions that he asked of those disciples on that particular day in that particular place, and at that particular time. We don't know, but we can speculate. Maybe Jesus was just walking through the community that day, and he began to eavesdrop on conversations that he was hearing as he walked through town, and perhaps some of those conversations were about him. Perhaps they didn't know who he was, but they'd heard about this man, Jesus, and so they just wanted to ask a question. Who do you think this guy is? Or or what do you think he's about? Why is he here? What's he supposed to be doing? And so perhaps that's why Jesus decided to ask his closest friends that question, because he heard others in the town asking similar questions as he was making his way around town. But it could be that maybe he asked those two questions that day because of where they were. Caesarea Philippi was believed by many scholars to be one of the most religiously diverse communities of Jesus' day. Caesarea Philippi is believed to be where the springs of the Jordan River began. So because of that, Jewish people would have held that place in high reverence. Caesarea Philippi is believed to be the birthplace of the Greek god Pan, the god of the wild, the god of nature. And so if you were Greek, this place would hold a special place for you. Archaeologists tell us that Caesarea Philippi was likely the place where there was worship centers for Baal. And so anybody that was into worshiping Baal would have been right at home in Caesarea Philippi. And it's believed it was also a worship center there for Caesar. And so there's this really religious, diverse community where lots of people and things are being worshipped and lots of religions being practiced. And so maybe Jesus just wants to size himself up. You know, in, compared to all of these other things and people and places being worshipped, what do people think about me? How do I stack up? We don't really know why he asked the disciples that question that day, but he decided to ask them two questions. The first question was, Who do people say that I am? And the responses that Jesus got really require all of us to stretch our imaginations a little bit, you know? i got to remember there's a choir behind me. They need to be preached at too, don't they? (laughs) 
Um, it really required them to stretch their imagination because all of the responses that the disciples gave about who the people might think that Jesus was, well, they're no longer with us anymore. You get it? I mean, John, he was the one that said, I come to prepare a way for the one that is to come. And what happened to him? Elijah? You know, Elijah was the one that uh, got taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, never to be seen from again. Now, in Malachi, we're told that before the Messiah comes, that this Elijah is going to return. Well, what about Jeremiah? Jeremiah was one of the prophets that was a prophet during the time of the Babylonian exile. And, and Jeremiah, tradition says, right before the Babylonian exile, took the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense, and he hid it in a cave in Mount Nebo. And according to tradition, whenever the Messiah returns, right before that happens, oh, Jeremiah's going to come back. He's going to go get that Ark of the Covenant. He's going to go get that altar of incense. And everybody, once again, will be able to reveal and re revert, revere the glory of the Lord. So all of those people that he mentioned, if any of those things had been who Jesus was, that would have been worth writing about, worth reading about, worth talking about, but apparently none of those things really got at the heart of who Jesus was. And apparently Jesus wasn't really concerned about what everybody else was saying about who he was. What he wanted to know is of those closest disciples, who do you say that I am? I don't know how much you know about old Simon Peter, but he's the most impulsive one of the lot. He's the one you can always count on to speak up first. He's the one that's never had an opinion that he didn't give voice to, usually right off the top of his head. And so he says, I know who you are. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it must have been the right answer. Because Jesus looked at Simon and he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You didn't learn this in a book. You didn't hear this from somebody else in the town. I'll tell you where this information came from. It came from no one but God, God's self. That's where you got this. And Simon, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Now, I know we read some more about this scripture lesson this morning. I wanted you to have a pretty good full context of what's going on here. But I want to stop and I want to spend the time together that we have looking at this one phrase that Jesus said, you are the rock on which I will build my church. The word church there, the Greek word that is translated church in our translation today is the word ecclesia, ecclesia. And scholars believe that the original meaning of the word ecclesia was gathering, assembly. So that when Jesus said, you are the rock on which I build my church, what Jesus' original meaning may have meant was, you are the rock on which I will build. This confession that you have made is the rock on which I will build my gathering and my assembly. And so for Jesus, church meant an assembly or gathering of people who shared a common conviction and a common belief that Peter confessed that day 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But something happened in the early church. You know, they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't even have their own copy of the Bible. They couldn't read it and interpret it for themselves. They relied upon the religious authorities to tell them not only what the Bible said, but what it meant. And the early Christian community began to use this word ecclesia in a way that scholars believe was not the way that Jesus intended it to be used. And they began to look at the word ecclesia as the house of the Lord. And so this word ecclesia, which Jesus likely meant as a gathering of people who believe in the Lordship of Christ, became to be seen more as a building as a structure, as a monument. And it went that way for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And as best I can tell, one of the first people that really began to bring light to this fact that this word had been hijacked and was meant to be about a movement of a people who proclaimed the Lordship and the Messiahship of Christ and it became more as a building. The first person to really bring light to this is a guy by the name of William Tyndale. He was a 16th century reformer in the church. And he believed that the printing press had been invented and everybody that spoke English ought to be able to have a Bible written in English that they could read on their own and interpret. The religious authorities did not like this idea. They liked being the ones who knew it all. They liked being the ones that you had to rely on to get the Word of God from and their interpretation from. They didn't want any of you out there coming to your own ideas about what this book meant. And so William Tyndale went to the Bishop of London and said, I'd like to produce an English translation of the Bible using the Greek New Testament. And the bishop said, no. And William Tyndale realized pretty quickly that he was never going to get anywhere with this bishop, so he moved to Germany. And there he began to translate the Greek New Testament into English. And then he began to sneak copies of those English translations back into England. You imagine how that went over? It's like a lead balloon. Those religious authorities in England didn't like it at all. In fact, they came up with this great idea. We will buy all of those copies of the English translation of the Greek New Testament to make sure that nobody out there can get a copy. Well, they funded William Tyndale to keep doing what he was doing, so that worked out well, didn't it? Then they decided we're going to silence this William Tyndale. And it was only a few years later that one of William Tyndale's own friends betrayed him into the hands of soldiers. Much like Jesus was betrayed into the hands of soldiers by one of his friends. And within a year he was condemned as a heretic. And he was hanged. And then he was burned. But before he died, he translated this book into English. And one of the things that he did is that he was determined to recapture the essence of the word ecclesia. And so when he got to the scripture lesson that we've read this morning, and when Jesus has said, on this rock I will build my church, William Tyndale chose not to use the word church. 
He wanted to get beyond this idea that the church was a monument, that the church was a building, that the church was a structure. And instead, he wanted them to remember that the church is an assembly. It is a gathering of people that have a genuine conviction in the Lordship of Christ that He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so instead of using the word church, William Tyndale used the word congregation. Congregation. Because he wanted people to know that what the church really is is it's people like me, and it's people like you, that regardless of how different we are in every other way, there is one thing that unites us. There is one thing that we can all agree on, and that's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, I wanted you... Uh, to hear that this morning, because over the next several weeks, we're talking about the characteristics of a great church. I don't know you well enough. Maybe you embody all of these characteristics already. If so, you can just say amen, which means so be it, and we'll go on about our way. <laughs> but if we're going to talk about what makes a great church, the first thing we got to know that as beautiful and amazing as this building is, and it's one of the finest churches that I've been in in the Tennessee Conference, the church is not a monument. It's not a structure. It's not an institution. It's a gathering of people like you and me that despite our politics, that despite the rest of our theology, that despite what we believe and hold to be true and look with contempt upon everybody that doesn't think the way we do, the one thing that we agree on is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, the Son of the Living God. And if we can agree on that, church, God's got something good in store for us. I want you to remember these things about this congregation, this gathering of people who believe in the Lordship of Christ. The first thing I want you to remember is, is that it was envisioned, and I'm using Trinitarian language here, it was envisioned by the Father. It was envisioned by the Father. John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and one of the things as he gets off into that chapter, he says, you know, I'm no longer going to call you servants. Instead, I'm going to call you friends. And everything that I'm telling you, everything that I'm telling you has been made known to me by the Father. And so when Jesus starts talking about church, it wasn't his idea. It was envisioned first by God. And that's why Jesus talks about it. So it's envisioned by the Father, but it's established by the Son. Now, don't get me wrong, in the Scripture lesson today, when Jesus uh, responds to Peter's confession, what does He say? You are the rock on which I will build my church. So it was envisioned by the Father, but it was established by the Son, 
And the third thing I want to share with you this morning is it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you think your new senior pastor is going to do something to get this church going in a much better plateau, well, I'll be on the front row with our first-time guests next week. <laughs> the power comes from the Spirit. We're going to talk about Acts next week, but in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, Jesus says to the, those that are gathered around Him, you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it will compel you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this gathering, this church, this congregation that believes in the Lordship of Christ, we're here today. Why? Because it was envisioned by God. It was established by the Son. And it's constantly being empowered by the Spirit. Constantly. How many of you have spent your whole life in this church? Raise your hands high now. I'm not going to make you stand up and testify or anything. All right. How many of you been, were married in this church? How many of you were married for the second and third time? In this, no, don't, don't, don't. Um, I get ahead of myself sometimes. That improvisation thing just kind of takes over. How many of you baptized in this church? How many have had children or grandchildren baptized in this church? How many of you have had loved ones celebration of life, a funeral in this church? Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you that you never walk into this place again that you don't stop and think about all the lives that have been given to God in this place. I want you to think about all the powerful sermons that you've heard preached from this pulpit. Now, how long was Craig here? Nine years? So it had been ten years ago, but... Uh, I know y'all are going to tell him that, so... I want you to think about all the powerful anthems that you've heard sung by the choir all of the lives that have been given to God at that rail because of the faithfulness of this community of faith. But don't be mistaken. The building was not what changed those lives. Monuments don't change people's lives. Movements do. When people like you and me come together and we believe one thing, if nothing else, and that is the Lordship of Christ, lives are changed. And that's what I want you to be mindful of today. Because that's what makes a great church. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm not nervous, so um, it's great to be with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this day for a long time, and I celebrate this appointment and trust that God has great things in store for us here. 
You may remember I preached here about four years ago, almost to the day. It was Communion Sunday, and I went a little long in my preaching. And if you've seen the video that's been going viral around the church lately, you know that at one point I said, I'm just going to keep on preaching. I don't care. I'll never be back here again anyway. <laughs> Note to self. Improvisation's not always a good thing. I'm deeply indebted and grateful for some of my lifelong friends all the way from college are here and some others are here this morning. It means a lot to me that you're here today. Um, and my Ole Miss friends that are here today wanted to thank all of you who wore red, white, and blue in honor of my alma mater. It's really, that's a nice touch. Thank you. How many of you have been whitewater rafting? Quite a few of you. Yeah, that was the theme of the Vacation Bible School this week. It was really amazing. Uh, whitewater rafting is absolutely one of the most thrilling things that I have ever done, but it's not always safe, and it's not always predictable. And in fact, the first time that I ever went on a whitewater rafting trip, I really wasn't sure until I actually got in the raft that I was going to do it. I mean, it was really frightening to see what was happening because you're driving up the roads and you're seeing those people come down the rapids as you're arriving. And so I was really frightened. But there were two things that sort of happened that day that sort of made me feel better about this whitewater rafting excursion. Number one, they assured me that there were some simple rules for rafting. And if you obeyed those rules and those guidelines that you were more than likely going to be okay. And the second thing that they said is that every raft has a guide in the boat. And so I took those two things to heart. I've got a guide that's been down this river before, and I know now some of these rules for rafting. I'm going to be fine, and this is going to be fun. And so I thought I'd share with you some of those uh, rules for rafting this morning because I think they're applicable not only to the text that's already been read for you today, but also for our time in ministry together. One of the first rules of the, of the raft is to listen to your guide. Listen to your guide because they have been down this road before, this water before. They know what to do and they know where to go. And it's their job to tell you what to do and tell you which way to go to get down that river. So that's really, really helpful stuff. One of the other things that they'll tell you as a rule for rafting is to keep your head up. Keep your head up. It's tempting to just look down at the water where you're putting the oar into the water, but you need to be constantly aware of your surroundings and to keep your eyes on your objective. And so you've got to always keep your head up. One of the other rules of rafting that I can recall is to say that it's paddle together, not harder. It doesn't matter how hard you're paddling. If, if half of you are paddling hard, that's not nearly as effective as if everybody in the raft is paddling in unison. So it's important for us to paddle together. Another thing they tell you is to lean into the rocks. Lean into the rocks. Now that's counterintuitive because when you see that rock coming, you're tempted to want to lean back. But you're going to hit that rock. 
And if you're leaning back when you hit the rock, guess what? You're going out of the raft and into the water. And so they say, when you're riding down the river, lean into the rock. And when you hit the rock, you won't fall out. One of the final things that I remember about uh, the rafting is that uh, there's a chance that you will fall out, especially if you're leaning back when you hit that rock. And if you fall into the river, flip over, let your feet go first. Feet first means that when you're going down the river waiting on that raft guide to, to come and to save you and rescue you, that if you are about to hit a rock or a limb, you can push off with your feet. So why do I share that with you this morning? I think it's applicable for the text that we read. In, in this text, Jesus positions himself as the guide. He says, follow me. I'll tell you what to do, and I'll show you where to go. Follow me. Jesus, in essence, tells them to keep their head up, says if there's a goal in mind, you've got to keep your eyes on the objective, you've got to be aware of your surroundings. The goal is, is that I want every single one of you to follow me to be a fisher of people. That's the goal. Keep your head up. Jesus says, in essence, paddle together. Throughout his ministry, he talked about the importance of the Christian community working in concert with one another. We don't have to all work uh, so hard so much as we just work together to do wonderful things in ministry. The chances of us realizing the goal that God has for our church depends upon each one of us paddling in unison towards that same goal. And you may have read this in Scripture it's throughout the pages of the Old and New Testament, how the Lord, how God is referred to as our rock. God is our rock. On Him we have a sturdy foundation, but the rocks in the water... They can be obstacles, but one of the enjoyable things about rocks and the rapids is that they also help create the current that gets us to where we want to go. And I believe that's the way that God functions in our lives is the rock. But if you fall out of the boat, and chances are you will, just remember to surrender and put your feet first. There are going to be obstacles. But if you just get back up again, paddling together, walking forward in faith, there's a sermon there somewhere. Jesus said, follow me. In this text, he didn't say, believe in me. In this text, he didn't say, bow down to me. In this text, he didn't say, talk about me. In this text, he simply said, follow me. And I assure you that I'll make you fishers of people. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.